let's just try and come and concentrate now as we come to study God's word together and let's, let's pray again that the Lord will just help us as we come to do this. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that as we open your word, that you might help us to study it carefully. We pray that your Son would be our focus, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, and that, Father, your glory would be our goal and the application of what we study tonight in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'd be surprised if no one here in this room tonight has faced the disconcerting circumstance of reapplying for your own job. Reapplying for your own job. It seems to be a common phenomenon today. I was speaking recently to someone who has done this very exercise and they were explaining to me that not only did they have to reapply for their position, but that also they had to actually justify their position in the organization. So, for example, if you were a middle manager, not only do you have to reapply for your job, but you actually have to make a case that the job that you're currently doing is a middle manager's position. The upside of this was that you could also suggest that maybe you should be thought of as a senior manager. But, of course, the downside was, and this was a situation he told me, that some who believed they should be getting a raise in salary found themselves demoted. Others, at the same time, were elevated to a higher status, even as other people took a view of their position and of their status and of their authority. Now, this may seem a very modern circumstance, but actually it has a very ancient counterpart, as we're going to see tonight. Because this is precisely the kind of assessment that so many people were making of not just any individual, but of the Lord Jesus Christ himself during his earthly ministry. You see, there was this significant debate going on about the appropriate level of authority and the appropriate position that Jesus should be understood to have. Not within some profitable company, but within God's economy, what Jesus frequently described as the kingdom of God. Where did Jesus rank in the kingdom? Well, you know, some suggested that Jesus should be thought of really at the bottom of the chain. They said Jesus is really just an independent, rogue spokesman with no authority from God, whatever. There were others still who believed that perhaps Jesus should be thought of, you know, sort of halfway up the chain. They thought Jesus was a prophet. They believed that he had an authority as a spokesman from God, but it was a qualified authority. He should be thought of as a kind of middle manager. But you know, there was only a few, and not least Jesus himself, of course, who believed that his rightful place in the kingdom of God 
was at the very top of the chain and at the very top of the ladder. That he was more than an independent spokesman and even more than a prophet. But truth be told, in the words of our passage, he was the one who was to come. Or as the Jews frequently describe this figure, the Messiah, or sometimes the anointed king, the Messiah. What we're going to learn tonight through this passage of scripture, I do trust, is that it is this third view which is the correct view. That Jesus this evening, whatever you've conceived of him before, whatever you've even believed upon him in the past, it's a reminder to you tonight that Jesus is king. He really is. And so I invite you to open your Bible again to Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. Jesus is king. Let me suggest to you tonight that it is on this basis that Jesus performs three regal activities in this passage. And in this interaction with John and the crowds. Because, of course, when you have authority, when you have position and status, you have resources and power to do things. And that's what we see in this text. So here's the first thing that Jesus does on the basis of his kingship. Number one, the reassurance Jesus brings. And what may surprise us is that the person in need of reassurance is none other than John the Baptist. This bold and brash, this outspoken and assured, at least previously, individual that we met in chapter 3 of Luke's Gospel. John the Baptist, it is now evident, is in need of reassurance, even from our Lord himself. Now, here's how it works. Follow the story along. A report comes to John, verse 18. Where is John at this point? Of course, he is still confined in a prison cell. He's still in the gloomy dungeon where King Herod Antipas had dumped him at the end of chapter 3 because John had been saying things that did not please him. And so he hears these reports about what Jesus has been doing and he calls two of his disciples to him. Maybe these were the same disciples that had just been to visit Jesus. Uh, We don't know, but whatever the case, he assigns these two disciples with a new task. And he sends them to Jesus with a question, which is very precisely noted for us. You notice it comes twice in verse 19, and then it's repeated exactly in the exact words by the disciples in verse 20. Now, notice something very important, very significant about the question. It is a very specific question form of question that John asks. He does not ask whether in some general sense Jesus comes from God. No doubt John believes this. He believes that at some level Jesus is God's man. So he doesn't ask, have you come from God? Notice what he asks. He says, are you the one who was to come? Now, the one who was to come, it's a sort of kind of technical designation. And it clearly references the one whom the Jews had been waiting for. The one whom the Old Testament had prophesied and promised. The Messiah, the the anointed king. 
This is the one that John is asking about. Are you really the one, he asks? It's not as if John sends a list of theological questions to Jesus, you know, 27 items. He's just got one question and this is it. And it is so straightforward and indeed it is quite shocking to some people. In fact, some have argued, I was saying to Peter beforehand, all the commentators who suggest that, you know, John the Baptist really wasn't asking this from his heart of hearts. The logic goes that John was too strong in his faith to be asking such a a cloudy and foggy question to have misty doubts. And they suggest that John really sent these disciples for their benefit, not his. So it was a sort of training exercise, you know, just for them. Well, if this was the case in Luke's, the writer doesn't seem very clear of it. And in fact, if I may say so, it's the sort of romantic view of Scripture, which is ultimately unhelpful, that the great heroes of faith never had their great disappointments. They never had any fluctuations in their faith. Now, you only need to read your Bible to see that that's not the case. Read your Abraham and read your Moses and read your David. And you'll find that they were great mountaintops of faith and peaks of faith, but there were also the valleys as well. Why not John the Baptist in the situation that he finds himself? And especially when you consider some of the facts that may have driven John to this period of doubt. Let me just note a few things for you. Fact number one. Months have passed since John has declared publicly Jesus to be the Lord. That was the the word that he used back in chapter 3. But Jesus himself has failed to publicly declare that he is the Messiah. Now that must have seemed very, very strange to John. He's declared this is the one that's coming. Jesus bursts onto the scene and he doesn't want to tell anyone that he's the Lord. He doesn't want to tell anyone that he's the king. Just imagine we've got elections coming up on Thursday, is it? Or just imagine a candidate that's wanting to be elected and, you know, they still haven't declared that they're running by the Sunday night. It's just so strange. And consider, too, what John must have considered, that Jesus, he seems to have this rejection from the authorities of the day. It must have seemed strange that Jesus came to lead the Jewish nation and to take forward the Jewish people But the leaders of the nation don't like him at all. Very funny. And then, of course, there was the ministry style of Jesus. And we know that John expected that Jesus would bring a sort of imminent judgment, which would have included the immediate overthrow of the Roman occupation. He was expecting a very physical and action-packed bringing in of the kingdom of God, but this has failed to materialize. And of course, because this is the case, and this is the fourth thing, John is still in prison. And that must have been pretty upsetting. To be the forerunner of Jesus, the, the forerunner of the one who is the Lord, the King, the one who's going to change the nation, and months on, you're still stuck in a prison somewhere. And it seems as if Jesus can do nothing about it, or will not do anything about it. You see, John's doubt, if we may call it that, didn't just come out of nowhere. There were some specific, difficult circumstances in his life which drove him to this point of despair. And so it always is. 
at least for most of us, you know, believers in Jesus don't get up in the morning and have a little thought to themselves, I'm going to have a doubting day today. You know, sort of roll out the wrong side of the bed and think uh, spiritual contention is going to be the situation. No, we've all had the experience where some circumstance, something just hits us like a juggernaut. Some problem comes careering down the wrong side of the road of life and that difficult circumstance, that confusing situation, just makes us question, like John, what on earth is going on? And where is Jesus in all of this? And if Jesus is who he says he is, why are things turning out that way? Now, if that's your experience, and no doubt for some of you tonight, it is. And if not, it will be the experience of some of you. Well, notice very carefully what John does. He's so smart. He's really so clever, despite his situation, because he doesn't bottle up his doubt. He doesn't deny his doubt. He isn't either so naive as to go to all the religious liberal teachers of the day and say, what do you think? He goes directly to Jesus. Or, well, he couldn't go himself. He had to send his messengers directly to him. You know, it's not a bad method even today. Go to Christ. And as he does, the doubter is reassured. I wish I could take all the time on this, but just very, this is a crash course in dealing with doubt that Jesus gives us. Some amazing bits of truth in this. Listen to the three things that Jesus does to deal with his doubt. Number one, Jesus points us to his deeds. He points John to his, Jesus' deeds. Because in verse 22, Jesus says, go back and report to John what you have seen and what you have heard. Now, what, what have they seen and heard? What they have seen and heard is the deeds of Jesus, is the miracles of Jesus, is the acts of Jesus, the raising of a widow's son from the dead. He says, go back to John and, and recount to him the, the deeds, the facts of what I've been doing. And it's not as if Jesus, therefore, uh, says to John, you know, you're having a bit of a faith crisis here. Uh, go in the next Christianity Explored course. Or, you know, we'll give you a manual uh, of just various instruction and teachings because obviously you're not very clear in this, John. Now, what he says to him is, re-examine the divine deeds that underpin the doctrine that you believe. This is a very important principle, incidentally. You know, if we're dealing with doubt, let's just say, for example, it doesn't seem to us anymore as if Jesus is alive, Jesus is present. Well, we don't just keep singing out hymns like, in the tomb so called they lay him, and then the chorus, Christ is risen, Christ is risen. And if we sing it enough times, if we say it enough times, we'll believe it. No, you go back to the historical facts. You re-examine the deeds of God on that morning which underpin the doctrine of Christ's resurrection. Now this, of course, is tied in with a second principle. Jesus, secondly, reminds us of the Scriptures. It's not perhaps immediately obvious, but actually this report which Jesus gives is full of allusions to the Old Testament Scriptures. And to the ear that was trained to the Old Testament, and John's ear clearly would have been, there would have been an unmistakable recognition that in this description there were echoes of prophecy, particularly the prophecy 
of Isaiah. And John would have heard ringing in his ears chapter 26 and chapter 29 and chapter 35 and chapter 61. Where Isaiah there speaks of the blind receiving sight and the lame walking and the deaf hearing and the good news being preached to the poor. In other words, Jesus isn't just reporting some stale facts here. He is corroborating his ministry as he relates it to the Old Testament. As he says, these scriptures attest to me. These scriptures refer to me. These scriptures are fulfilled in me. John, remember the scriptures. And in particular, recall that as well as the judgment passages which John hadn't understood the judgment part would come later with the second coming of Jesus. He hadn't understood this. But he says, as well as these judgment passages, remember that there was all sorts of other things said as well about what the Messiah would do, that the Messiah would heal the blind, and he would heal the lame, and and he would preach to the poor. What do you make of it, John? And brothers and sisters, you know, if we're dealing with that, there's a very clear principle here for us. That it is incumbent upon us to get ourselves as quickly as we can and as directly as we can into this book. Into the scriptures which testify to the person of Jesus Christ. When we're in a place of doubt, it is not the time to go for long, wandering walks. Musing to ourselves and thinking that we might have some epiphany. We need to get our Bibles open and have a Bible study. And familiarize ourselves again with how the entire corpus of Scripture points to Jesus Christ. So that if we've lost the conviction, we are reconvinced. Someone has said that the whole of Scripture is a hymn book. It all points to him. And as we, as we restudy the Old Testament passages, as, as, as we see there that it all points to the Lord Jesus Christ, wow, the reassurance comes. And thirdly, and I love this, Jesus then just simply encourages John. And he encourages us with a promise. It's a beautiful promise. In verse 32, Blessed, he says, is the man or the woman who does not fall away on account of me. It's very interestingly what it, what it literally says. It says, blessed are those who are not scandalized. That's the word, the word from which we get scandalous. Those who are not scandalized by me. Who do not fall away. Who are not offended by me. You see, Jesus understood that it is possible for people to leave the church, not just because of the church. That's often what we think. You know, maybe people like Jesus, but they don't like the church. Well, that's true of some people, but a lot of folks don't get Jesus. They can't get to grips with Jesus. They can't accept Jesus' way of doing things. And maybe even that's our situation. Maybe even for those of us who have professed to walk with Jesus... And you know, a little question mark has come into our mind when Jesus hasn't done things the way that we expected. When there were particular things or particular problems that we expected him to remove and he didn't. And we're still in the dungeon. And it's wonderful, Jesus just so positively, so gently encourages. You know, it's positive, not negative. He doesn't say, cursed are you. Cursed are you if you don't do this. 
He says, blessed are you. He says, it's a blessed path to trust in me, even when things don't seem to be going your way. Even when you don't fully understand what is happening. And he says that to you this evening. He says that to you tonight. Trust me. Keep walking in my blessed way. You've been blessed in the past. You will be blessed in the future. Just keep holding on. It's very intriguing. We don't actually know how John responded. Luke doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't tell us. In a sense, it's not the point, actually. The challenge is, how will we respond? How will you respond tonight? Will we receive the reassurance Jesus gives? Now, secondly, notice another thing that Jesus does on the basis of the fact that he is king. And that that is the commendation Jesus provides. Uh, John's messengers, they leave to take this message back to John. And the moment they're out of earshot, I wonder why Jesus did that. Was it to protect John from pride? I don't know. But after they go away, he starts to speak to the crowd about John. And it seems here that Jesus begins by commending John to them. It's a commendation of John. Now, why did Jesus do this? Jesus wasn't always in the business of talking other individuals up. Well, for one reason, perhaps because of what Jesus has just said about John. But perhaps for another reason, because it was evident that people were writing John off and they were criticizing him. We find this in verse 33, a few verses on, that some people are claiming, you know, this guy John, he has a demon. There was great fervor which surrounded John's ministry in a bygone day, and the crowds had flocked to him, and they were eager to be associated with him. But you know how it happens. The fall came, and once he was in prison, uh, no one wanted to be associated. People took a back step, changed their tune. Well, no, says Jesus, John should not be regarded in such a way. He shouldn't be forgotten about. And in fact, says Jesus, if you remember back, when you traveled out to see John, you had some good reasons for doing so. Notice a couple of things. First of all, he says, you know, John was a man of stability. That's why you went out to listen to him. Verse 24, what did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? In those days, of course, there were many reeds, especially out in the desert places. And Jesus is here, however, comparing a reed with John the Baptist. Such reeds, they were very easy to push over with the wind. Always shaking, always wavering, always breaking. And so Jesus asks, is this the kind of man John the Baptist was? Is this why you went to see him? Was he a man wavering about? Was he a man who was swayed by the... Fickle opinions of people? Of course not, is the implied answer. They went to hear a man who spoke with authority. They had enough of the hearsay and the ideas and the opinions. And they went to see this man with a firm conviction based upon the fact that he had God's word. You know, we know that these days we live in so-called postmodern times and people aren't very keen on certainty. It's all opinion. People don't like authoritative truth. Maybe the days are coming when we're going to see a swing back as people begin to reject all this mealy-mouthed talk, this lack of assurance, and actually say, we want to hear people that stand up with conviction and have certainty. Maybe those days will return. 
a man of stability, a man also of self-denial. He didn't have shaky convictions, neither, (laughs) says Jesus, was he some kind of celebrity or some kind of fashion icon. Was it a man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes, indulge in luxury, they live in palaces. You know, they don't tend to be sort of brought up in the desert on the sticks. So you didn't go for that either. But instead you were challenged by his evident example of self-denial. And even more, says Jesus, and this is a remarkable commendation, he, he says in effect that John was a man of great stature. Did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, he says, and more than a prophet. And then he quotes from Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, and he speaks there about this great prophet, the final prophet before the coming Messiah, and he says, you know, that reference is to John. This is who John is. He refers to that. He's a man of enormous stature. Just think of all the prophets. Just think of Moses. Just think of Elijah and all these incredible figures, men of God. And and he says, John, you know, he's even greater than all of those. Why was this the case? I think uh, Matthew Henry puts this very well. He explains it like this. He says, John was more than a prophet. Uh, because he was more than any of the prophets in the Old Testament, for they spoke of Christ at a distance. John spoke of him at the door. This is why John was greater. They spoke of him from far off, from a distance. John was right at the door, ushering in the Messiah himself. And so Jesus is basically saying, John should be respected enormously. He shouldn't be rejected in this kind of way. He he should be commended, not criticized. This is high praise indeed. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say, verse 28, that among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Amazing. Now, by the point of verse 28, we are looking up to John so much that our necks are getting sore. Uh, Only Jesus himself is far, far, far above John. And then quite suddenly, and I think this is the most startling point in the whole passage, Jesus drops just a a theological time bomb. But you didn't know they existed in Scripture, but they, they do. And he says, well, there is no one greater than John, born of women, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So Jesus' commendation of John, that's just the starting point. Where Jesus wants to go, John is really a stepping stone to commend the kingdom of God. To commend what it means to be a child of God's kingdom. Now, now how can Jesus possibly get to this conclusion? How can this be that the least in the kingdom of God, just, you know, some of us think that we're pretty poor Christians, pretty faltering folks. Now just think about this. Jesus is actually saying that in some way we are greater than John the Baptist. In some way. Who himself was greater than all the prophets, Moses and Elijah and so on. How can this be? And I think it's a puzzle that we begin to unravel when we understand something of the unfolding of the history of redemption. John was, in a sense, greater than the prophets because he stood at the door, not at a distance. But there's another sense in which we are greater than John because actually we live on the other side of the door. 
And there was, a, there was a point in which John did not enjoy the present realization and the full experience of seeing the kingdom coming. He was carted off into prison beforehand, as Luke points out to us. And therefore, what Jesus says in chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, about the other prophets of the Old Testament, also has some reference to John. Remember what Jesus said. Blessed are the eyes which see what you see, And he's talking to his disciples here. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and hear what you hear and did not hear it. And there's a sense in which John ushered in the beginning of the kingdom, but he didn't really see it in its full force. He welcomed the king, but he didn't hang around to witness the king. Here he is, he's having to send his messengers to kind of get little tidbits about what's going on. Just think about this. John the Baptist never witnessed any of the miracles of Jesus, first hand, that we know of. He didn't hear any of the teaching of Jesus, again, that we learn of. He certainly never lived, because he himself was executed, to see the death of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus, his ascension, never mind the day of Pentecost and the starting The birthing of the church. There was a sense in which John was more privileged than the prophets. But there's another sense in which, listen to this, we are more privileged than John the Baptist. Because of the time in which we live. He was at the door, we live on the other side of the door. Do you realize what an immense privilege it is to be here tonight? To live on this side of the coming of Christ. With Jesus and with the gospel and with the Holy Spirit, and with the entire Bible, and with the church. We are so blessed if we are part of the kingdom of God. And I think this is just really an encouragement tonight. You say, what is the application of this? It's just a wonderful encouragement if you're a child of the kingdom. Maybe you think that in your life there's not an awful lot to be thankful for. And... I want to tell you this evening, you have got plenty of blessings to count. The old song used to say, uh, some of you maybe sang it, count your blessings, name them one by one, and then you'll be thankful for what the Lord has done. Well, you know, we've got a few more blessings to count than John the Baptist did, and than the prophets did before him. Jesus is king. He is the coming one. And therefore, we can take these blessings to the bank. They are absolutely sure And this is the commendation he provides of his kingdom. If you're not part of that kingdom, he invites you into it this evening. Thirdly, third thing Jesus does, the rebuke Jesus brings. The rebuke Jesus brings. John Wesley once said, how delicate a thing it is to reprove. To do it well requires more than human wisdom. Well, Jesus often reproved. He certainly did it with wisdom, but it wasn't always delicate. And as we come to the conclusion of this story, what we find is that Jesus needs to do some reproving and rebuking. And what we discover is that there are some different responses to what Jesus has been saying. There are two opinions. There are two groups of people. First of all, you have the receptive group. And surprisingly, verse 29, this includes even some you might not expect, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right. 
You see, they, they remember, they remember back to the fact that they had been baptized by John. They recalled the reasons why they were baptized. And, and they knew that there was truth in what Jesus was saying. But sad to say, there was this other faction. And again, this is somewhat surprising because it, it involves the, the religious teachers and the hierarchy and the people you would have expected to get it. But the Pharisees, verse 30, and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. You know, they'd made their line in the sand and they didn't want to embarrass themselves by agreeing with Jesus now. And of course, as much as they rejected John, they actually rejected Jesus himself. It was, in some ways, a twin package. If you discarded the forerunner of Jesus, then of course, Jesus himself mustn't be much to write home about. And so Jesus rebukes them, and this is not so much of a gentle rebuke this time, although he does use a parable, a story, which really drives the point home. And it's no accident, I think, that it's cast in the form of childhood rhymes. Because their behavior was a little bit childish. And uh, Jesus' essential point is that their rejection of him, of Jesus and John, is both unreasonable and inconsistent and even childish. And, And he shows this by pointing out the sort of contradictory nature of their responses. That they they couldn't even seem to agree with themselves. And he quotes this little couplet. It partly comes from, from a sort of childhood song. When their uh, fellow children would not join in the games, the disgruntled children would sing these little rhymes. Was this just a Glasgow thing? You know, when someone uh, didn't want to play ball, you had a little song for them uh, just to provoke them to play or just to annoy them. Uh, Well, here's one of them here. Same kind of thing. First of all, they pick up the flutes and they say, we want to play weddings. This is obviously what the children did in these days. And the other children say, we don't want to play this game. It was too much like fun, and we don't want to have fun today. So the children think to themselves, we'll try another tack. If they're obviously not in a good mood, let's play funerals. And, uh, you know, these uh, instruments can be used for dirges as well. Let's do the sad thing, the morning thing. You play this, I'll play that. Once again, the children aren't playing. And here's the point. They won't play weddings and celebrate. And they won't play funerals either. And be sad and mourn. There's just no place in these people. Because John the Baptist came. And they they said of John the Baptist, this guy's too gloomy. You know, he's a funerals guy. We don't want to play this game. Cheer up, John. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus, you know, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus comes in and he goes to, to parties, so to speak, that they don't approve of. And it's a message of great celebration and wonderful joy. And they say, oh no, we don't want to play that either. It's too joyful. Jesus is saying, you just can't be pleased either way. The, the bottom line really was that these folks were unwilling to meet God on God's terms. One commentator puts it like this. He says, they wanted God to respond to their music rather than follow God's tune. That's what they wanted. Whatever God said the tune was, they didn't want to, they didn't want to play along with it. You know, if truth be told, that can describe us sometimes. We want God to play our tune, and then when he does play our tune, it's just not satisfactory. 
I wonder if you don't like the tune, a lot of people don't, of being told that you're a sinner. A rebel in need of grace. Some people don't like this tune. Maybe you hate that melody. Or maybe you don't like the melody of a crucified Savior. Maybe that's too gloomy for you. On the other hand, maybe you despise the the joyous chorus of a risen Savior and and a hope for the future in heaven. You know, you just can't be pleased by any of these things. If that's been your approach, then first of all, I would challenge you to re-examine the evidence for who Jesus claims that he is. But secondly, and gently to say to you, stop being childish. Stop being so hard to please. You know, sometimes we're just... If truth were told, sometimes we're just stubborn. We're just not playing ball. And God wants us to get rid of that pride and to get into the game. You know, millions of others already have. And that's what Jesus finishes with. Uh, He says, you know, the, the, the witness of what I'm saying that it's true is wisdom's children, as he calls them, verse 35. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. See, this wise way, this way of salvation and trusting in Jesus as king is evidenced by the change of lives, multitudes of lives, many children, and all the spiritual births that we can see in the world around us. Because Jesus is king. That's the message this evening. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. And because he is king, if you have doubts this evening, he can reassure you in those doubts. Because as you examine the evidence, you will see that he really, really is. And because he is king, if you're discouraged tonight, he can bring you encouragement and commendation. That you are a child in God's kingdom. Whatever else is happening, whatever else is going on. What a privilege. But beware also, because he is king, that if you deny him, Jesus also brings you rebuke this evening. And it is rebuke not to condemn you. It is rebuke to turn you around and to follow him. To put your faith in him. If you come to him tonight, if you open your life, perhaps for the very first time, and you take his word to heart, I can guarantee you, you can take his word for granted. Because he's king. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much that Jesus is King. And Lord, however the country votes next week, we praise you that ultimately Jesus is Lord and has ultimate authority in this world and in the next. Lord, we know there's a day coming and we worship you for this. When all things will come into the direct possession of Jesus Christ. He is the heir of all things. So Lord we pray. That tonight. He might have the preeminence in our lives. Lord we are sinful people. We are so stubborn. So often. So would you humble us. Would you do whatever you need to do. To achieve the preeminence of Jesus in us. Reassure us. Commend us, encourage us, 
And Lord, even if necessary, rebuke us so that we might turn to you in faith and in repentance. And we ask all of this to the glory of Jesus, that his name would be honored. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.